All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Elections Weekly. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Eric Cunningham. With us this week, we got several people with us. We got, uh, as usual, Joe Szymanski at Kraz Granitz and Dylan Brown. All of us here, Joe's enjoying a soup, uh, it appears. Uh, Good miso uh, soup. I'm finishing it up. I'm almost done. Wow, that's so, yeah. that's healthy. That's like, you know, becoming a hippie, eating miso soup. You know? yeah. <laughs> I got like, I got a thing of sushi over here. I got a salad. I'm eating, I'm eating healthy tonight. Join us yeah. on the second. Yeah, but we've got some, uh, we got some um, interesting stuff. Uh, we have a new segment to introduce to you at the end. Uh, but we'll go ahead and start with, I guess, probably the uh, the most uh, pressing story this week, which would be the Maryland House elections coming up, or in Maryland primaries, I should say. There's more than just the House elections, House primaries. Uh, Maryland, uh, as we all know, redistricted its congressional map this cycle. Uh, their initial proposal, which was an abomination, was struck down by the Maryland Supreme Court. And in a compromise, uh, in exchange for Larry Hogan signing the map, Democrats effectively ceded the first district to Andy Harris and created a competitive sixth district. Uh, Ten years ago, or for, sorry, four years ago, well, there probably would have been an initial competitive seat in Baltimore County. That seat we don't expect to be competitive at this point, even though it would have been about a Biden plus, or a Clinton plus 10 seat. It's about Biden plus 20 now. So in reality, you've got what but you have a very safe Republican seat with Andy Harris, who is probably going to win anyway, even under the old map, always consistently overperforms partisan baselines, despite his more controversial, controversial policy views. And in the sixth district, we've got an interesting one. This is a Biden plus one, a 10 seat, but it was only Clinton plus one long history of Republican support down ballot. If, uh, as Joe wrote this morning, if Republicans can win Frederick County, which was a county that swung from Biden to uh, Trump. Uh, if it, basically, if they can win the county by about three to four points, they're probably on pace to win the district. They need to do a little bit better than Trump did there in 2016. But I'll throw it to Joe here to kind of explain it real quick. He's kind of our point guy for Maryland right now, although Kraz is also uh, went to college at lived Maryland. There. Yeah, lived there for a number of years. Yeah, lived there for a number of years. So, you know, he got, he got some good, good, uh, good points there as well. But we'll go ahead and throw it to Joe to kind of explain what's going on here, who's on the Republican side. Uh, and then on, on the, the dynamics of this race, because it's all come down to, in effect, two Republicans going up against David Trone, who has tended to underperform the top of the ballot, doesn't live in the district, but does have a ton of money, an infinite well of money, one might even say. Yeah, so there's there really uh, Maryland, obviously, uh, there's there's the governor, both gubernatorial primaries, of course, to watch on uh, Tuesday night. Uh, obviously, the Republicans looking to replace Larry Hogan uh, between Kelly Schultz, the Hogan endorsed candidate, and Delegate Dan Cox, the Trump endorsed candidate. You can usually tell how that would go if Republicans would uh, nominate the Trump endorsed guy. Uh, you can probably tell where that race would be going. But there are, as Eric mentioned, some really key House primaries. There's one for the Republicans, obviously, the sixth district uh, with that newly drawn competitive seat, as well as the fourth district for Democrats. I remember that. Uh, current fourth district representative Anthony Brown is retiring uh, in an attempt to run for attorney general again, as the attorney general of Maryland is also retiring at this point. Uh, so we're that's a very it's a, this is a super super safe D seat uh, that uh, is uh, protruding a pretty interesting primary itself. But we'll start with the sixth district. Uh, as Eric said, there's technically five Republican candidates, but it seems we've gotten it down to two. Uh, current uh, delegate and also uh, 2020 nominee uh, Neil Parrott. Uh, he was the not like I mentioned. He was nominated for the old seat, the much more uh, the much more democratic leaning. This the old version of the seat took in a much larger chunk of Montgomery of Blue Montgomery County, which is a much more mm -hmm. uh, D.C. area suburban county. 
And it also uh, basically avoided the entire northeastern, more Republican parts of Frederick, uh, which is what it gained and lost a lot of Montgomery County, which is why we see that shift from what was about a Biden plus 22 seat uh, under the old lines, now only a Biden plus 10 seat, Clinton plus one seat under the new lines. Uh, so those, and, uh, so Parrott's been a guy who's kind of been pushing for these more fair maps uh, for a while, but Matthew Foldy is the other Republican here. He He's kind of really one of the more intriguing candidates uh, that Republicans have brought up because he is kind of the first of the young conservative social media influencer. I put that in quotations, but it's kind of true mm-hmm. with Foldy. If you kind of hung around Republican circles, on Twitter the last couple of years, Foldy's a name you would see come up quite often. Uh, he was a kind of a known, basically, sidekick to well-known conservative provocateur, comfortably smug on Twitter uh, for the last couple of years. But he did kind of parlay that into a serious career. Uh, he is a journalist at the Washington Free uh, Beacon, which is a conservative outlet. Uh, he's been someone who got into this race because he was pushing very hard against Trone. Uh, Trone has kind of come under controversy in the district because he's kept a lot of his district offices closed, uh, continuing to be closed right now in the area, even as we have continued to exit out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, he's come under some heavy criticism from that, and Foley's been the one really pushing back on that. Uh, to These two, it's I can't really grasp which one necessarily the more conservative if you look at endorsements. Uh, you would think it's Parrot. Parrot has the endorsement of uh, CPAC, uh, Freedom Works, uh, the Maryland Right to Life, and Andy Andy Harris himself, who, as Eric mentioned, while he overperforms, is a pretty well-known member of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, and you look at uh, Parrot uh, Foldy's endorsements; it's kind of a wide range. You have uh, everyone from Don Bacon and Marionette Miller Meeks, uh, and including Larry Hogan, uh, to people like uh, Jim Banks, uh, Elise Stefanik. And uh, Donald Trump Jr., of all people, uh, have endorsed Foldy. Uh, interestingly enough, the Washington Post actually endorsed Neil Parrott uh, because Parrott basically said that, yeah, Joe Biden lost the 2020 election. Or at least they believe so in his actions. Well, apparently in their interview, Foldy kind of hedged on the question, which is certainly <laughs> an interesting strategy to take in a Biden plus 10 district in Maryland. But uh Really, both are kind of more your run-of-the-mill conservative, really, in this case. Uh, I don't really see any, like, big flashing lights issues with any of them. But people have argued that Foldy might be kind of the more mainstream. He's from the suburbs. He's from Montgomery County. He might be able to speak to those voters more. While Parrott is more based in those three western counties uh, that we talked about in Maryland, those ones that you would kind of more act like, I think anyone would say he's been in the state of Maryland, they act more like West Virginia uh, than they are maybe culturally compared to the state of Maryland. Uh, you know, uh, Hagerstown is the big area around there. That's kind of sort of purplish, but everything else around it is a very, very deep, dark red that is very much unlike the rest of the state of Maryland. And I do want to mention this, though, is that you, you talk about this Washington Post endorsement. Uh, don't want to do a, I, 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 Eric, Eric, I, I, Eric, I'm really wrong with your microphone. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Oh. <laughs> Oops. Oh, I thought that was me for a second. The, no, that's sure? him. Okay. That's, yeah, that's yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, that's you. That's you. All right. Give me just a second here. Just a second here. Okay. Usually, the, whenever I hear that, it's my mic. <laughs> Um, I, I can talk a little bit about this district. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting race because I think, like Joe mentioned, you, know, you kind of have dueling uh, areas here. So you have the D.C. suburb, uh, the kind of the D.C. suburbs in this district, but you also have kind of the West West Virginia-esque portions, and then you have Frederick that's right in the middle. 
Um, and Frederick's probably going to decide this race because there aren't enough voters in the West Virginia, in like kind of the, the Western Maryland portions to uh, carry a candidate here. Um, they just don't have very many people. Um, and then, you know, in the D.C. suburbs, you kind of have a lot of voters, but a lot of them are Democrats. And so really it's Frederick that's going to decide this. Um, and Frederick is an interesting situation. It's kind of a mid-sized city. It's kind of connected to D.C., but not really. Most people don't commute to D.C. They don't really commute to Baltimore. It's kind of its own thing. Um, and so that, that'll that be interesting to see um, how it breaks. And it's a, it's, a, it's a county that's gotten a lot bluer. It's gotten like probably 20-something points bluer since like the mid-2000s. Um, highly educated, um, pretty suburban. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Mm -hmm. Does it sound better now? Yes, yes, you are Not fixed. Forever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was going to say, I was just going to mention a little bit about that Frederick uh, Frederick dichotomy here is that uh, colloquially for decades, uh, Frederick County residents were known as Frednecks uh, because they're connected <laughs> yeah. from, the, from the DC suburbs. Since then, there's been, you know, rail that's come in there. Whatnot. I want to mention the Washington Post endorsement, which a lot of newspapers don't endorse specifically in primaries, or uh, Washington Post does. Uh, I don't know how, what impact it'll play there, but it is, you know, it, it is an interesting thing to watch. They tend to be uh, someone who's more active in those Republican primaries than you would expect for a a, a very liberal-leaning newspaper, I would say, one that has a pretty good reputation, but that's well-known for having, you know, like the New York Times, having a having a very strong uh, set of views in its opinion section. Um, so it's interesting that they're willing to go out and endorse in those Republican primaries. Um, I was going to, real quick, I've been working in DRA here, making a, a quick little map just to kind of show the comparison here between these parts of the district. Uh, so basically... The three chunks, there's three chunks of this Maryland 8 congressional district. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here for you guys so you can see it. Oops. Uh, dang it. Uh, I cannot show it. Basically, the, there's basically three different types. There's three different county groupings in this um, in this here, let me Let me share the, Wiki, let me share the Wikipedia uh, photo of uh, the district here. Mm-hmm. There we go. So the three of them, um, sorry. So the three of them right here. Um, so those three counties in the in the western portion of the district: uh, Garrett, Allegheny, and Washington. <laughs> Oops, uh, two hundred forty-five thousand people in these counties. Um, so that's not a small. That's about a third of the district. And this this portion of the district voted for Donald Trump by thirty-one percent. It basically voted like West Virginia because it basically is West Virginia. Uh, it, it, these areas are not that well connected with the, the rest of Maryland. The Frederick County portion uh, is, again, about a third of the district. It's actually the largest chunk, 271,000 voters. It voted for Joe Biden by a not, by about uh, nine and a half percentage points, about a 14,000 vote margin compared to uh, – yeah, about a 14-point margin compared to the – or 14,000 vote margin compared to, you know, more like 35 for the Washington portion. The the Montgomery County portion, two hundred fifty four thousand people voted for Donald for Joe, voted for Joe Biden by fifty percentage points. Um, so on so on the one hand, you got this very very Trumpy area, R plus thirty. On the other side, you got this very very Democratic area, Biden plus fifty. And in the middle, you got Frederick County. That's the dichotomy. This is three very different districts. One of them is very urban, very progressive, very Democratic, very 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 Democratic. Uh, in the middle, you got Frederick County, which is, as Krause mentioned, it's kind of its own thing. It's Democratic trending, Democratic leaning, but it's not as entirely connected as, as one might think. And then the other end, you got West Virginia. Like, that's the interesting thing about the seat. Uh, I, you know, there have been, in it, most fair map proposals had Carroll County included in this district. Uh, the map is still a little bit of a Democratic lean, 
but I don't think the current draw is entirely unreasonable. It does follow a pretty clear trajectory. So I'm really interested to see the primary in this, but I'm also really interested interested to see the general. This is a seat that's, you know, as I said, it's very competitive. This is a seat that, you know, uh, we have this rated as what, a toss-up right now, or is Leans Democratic? Leans Democratic. Um, yeah, Leans Democratic. And this is one that we could easily see shifting to toss-up. Um, uh, you know, later on. And again, just, just to mention one more thing about this district, it voted for Larry Hogan by about 31 percentage points. So in his every gubernatorial county, re-election. Every yeah. county in Maryland. Is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is where the John Delaney quote, the, uh, the, the, you know, that it's a red district uh, came yeah. from. Even that iteration voted for, for Larry Hogan by a very, very large margin. Yeah. But let's go so, to the gubernatorial primary real quick, too, because that's on the Republican side. That's particularly interesting. We have this as a likely Democratic race. We'd expect Democrats to pick this up, but we don't think Republicans are entirely out of it. We do think they can at least make this competitive with the right nominee. So who are the Democrats trending towards and who are the Republicans, the Republican candidates here that we're looking at? Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, uh, obvi- there are two key Republican candidates in Maryland right now. Uh, there's Dan Cox, who's a current delegate. Uh, from that more red rural West Virginia area, this is a guy who's a pretty well-known 2020 election denier. Uh, he's, he's gone off the deep end in some circumstances, but that has led, as it has in some cases, to a Trump endorsement in these uh, safe blue seats. Uh, this is basically Trump's middle finger to Larry Hogan, because uh, I think Trump sees it as potentially a swing against him. If uh, Hogan is able to get his favored candidate in uh in this blue state and if he if that favorite mm-hmm. candidate were able to win again uh that could be kind of look bad maybe a little bit bad on trump uh if hogan as it seems he has taken the actions right now seems set to be running for president in uh 2024 <laughs> that mythical <laughs> moderate republican lane that gets hyped to, to hell and every Eric, president's election Eric, your mic again oh, come on yeah but uh, uh, Kelly Schultz, though, she's the former Secretary of Commerce and uh, Secretary of Labor under the Hogan administration. She's also a former delegate, uh, I believe, also from kind of from the kind of from the more red area, but she's from more uh, parts of Frederick and Carroll, more than those three western counties. Those those parts are a little bit more uh, suburban, slightly more educated in uh, sustenance than those three counties right there. So it's an interesting race here for sure. Uh, like I said, Cox has the Trump endorsement, uh, but he's he's not someone that uh, would win here. Basically, the, the winner would almost certainly the, the person would need to certainly be uh, Kelly Schultz for it to be someone who could keep this race competitive. If Cox is the nominee, then uh, this would go off the board. Similarly to when Charlie Baker retired in Massachusetts and Republicans basically gave the nomination to Jeff Deal. I, I don't know, uh, Joe. I think the populists have something here. <laughs> uh, hey, but uh, if, if uh, Dan Cox would be the winner here, this would be go off the board and would go to Kelly Schultz. Look, if there's one thing Maryland has made clear that wants, it's election deniers that are populists and that are really presumed as aggressive and muscular conservatism. This is why Maryland <laughs> is one of the most Republican states in the country. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> But let's, I, I don't want to pass over the Democratic primary hope here, though, because this is, as it typically is in open seats in Maryland, uh, kind of a clown car primary a little bit. There are, there are multiple serious candidates in this race who have required uh, multiple key uh, endorsements. I'm going to kind of go through the uh, what seems to be kind of a top four here uh, right now for Maryland Democrats, because there, I believe right now, I think there are currently 
eight candidates uh, in the field. If I can see here, yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And there are nine candidates. There's about four, three or four kind of ones that I could see uh, winning here. Uh, so uh, the big one that people have been talking about is Peter Franchot. He's the current comptroller of Maryland. He's someone who even in Republican years has, in regular years, has pretty greatly overperformed uh, even the deep, deep Democratic uh, lean that would be of uh, of Maryland. He's someone who has won races uh, in statewide as the comptroller by nearly 50 points sometimes. Uh, back in 2018, he won 72-21. Uh, uh, even in the very heavy Republican years of 2010 and 2014, he won those races by 20-plus points. Uh, you know, this Franco is a guy who's been a known overperformer, but that, as we've seen, doesn't always translate the primary success for these kind of uh, – lower level statewide uh, candidates. Uh, Wes Moore is another interesting candidate here. Uh, he is an outsider. He's a businessman. He served as the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, which is a foundation that is uh, key to basically uh, give disaster relief uh, across the area in New York City of all places. But Wes Moore is a... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. A, I thought we were talking about Robin Hood. The stuff oh, no, no. That's foundation. why I laughed. <laughs> so uh more more's been uh kind of been in uh talk about for a couple of years now as a potential candidate he was talked about in 2014 as a running mate to doug gansler uh he was talked about as a candidate in the 2016 baltimore mariola election uh she he got in this time he's someone who has kind of who's been pulling relatively well again within that top two top three recently uh, Westmore, someone to keep an eye on. Uh, this is someone who's kind of come out of nowhere, at least in the latest poll. I will want to say, though, this poll does seem to be an internal of his, though, I believe. Uh, John King Jr. Uh, is an interesting one. Uh, he is a uh, member. He was the 10th and uh, Secretary of Education. He was the last one under Obama. Uh, so he's, some again, someone who's kind of stayed in uh, the Maryland era. He's kind of taken on this progressive wing of the party a little bit. He's someone who's uh, pushed for progressive uh, electeds and officials in Maryland before. Uh, so, but again, the only polls that he's done really well in so far to be quite clear are internals. And then boy, oh boy, Kraz is going to love, Kraz and Dylan are going to love this name. Uh, the guy who's been leading recently in the last couple of polls and the man who has the Washington Post endorsement. If you are a deep, true follower of politics for a while, you will know this man's name. Uh, the, the bane of Bernie Sanders in 2020, uh, Tom Perez. <laughs> uh, the, former the great Perez. Iowa primary, the great Iowa caucus creator. Yep, um, rigged rigged the Iowa caucus. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Perez uh, is currently endorsed by the Washington Post, actually, and he is currently uh, in the latest poll. Uh, again, this is an I, I want to again preface this is an internal by uh, by uh, John King Jr.'s. But this is the first poll, though. He's been slowly gaining on Franchot and more for about the last month. Uh, this is the first poll to show him in the lead. Uh, another internal by Wes Moore's campaign still showed France show in the league, but all these guys are kind of hovering around 20%. And we know what that means when all every all you have four cannons hovering around 20%. Uh, that car, means chaos. So, and adding on to this chaos, I want to say, is a, a great rule in Maryland. It's a great rule that we share in Pennsylvania, too. It's a stupid rule, though, in which that you cannot count mail ballots until the day after Election Day because reasons. So, uh, 
I don't know what you're talking about. When you have a very heavy Democratic state, and you have a lot of Democrats who like to vote by mail, what do you think is going to happen to the counting process on Tuesday night when they cannot count their mail-in ballots? Nothing bad. Nothing bad. Nothing, Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> Nothing bad could come from this, right? No. Oh, can, you imagine, can you imagine? Can you imagine if Dan Cox is leaning on election night <laughs> in the Republican primary, and then after the mail-in ballots come in, uh, he, Kelly Schultz takes the lead? What what Trump would be saying on Truth Social? That would be. Uh, <laughs> I Do we have a truth? We need. Uh, this is why we need a Truth Social account. This is why we oh, need. No, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to mention real quick though. Is uh, just a little bit, uh, you know, one thing I've noticed we kind of missing is the sort of progressive element of the Democratic Party. Obviously, 2018 Democrats nominated the progressive candidate in Maryland, proceeded to get demolished by Larry Hogan. Any Democrat would have gotten demolished. This time, both your top two are Tom Perez and Peter Franco, who in particular has just been kind of a very strong Larry Hogan ally during his term, uh, has been way more fiscally conservative than you would expect, a lot more of an independent sort of uh, person from especially like just from going away from Democratic Party positions. If you're a progressive, what do you think about this race? I'll kind of throw it to Dylan here because I think, but, but, you know, this is Maryland. This is the, this makes the Democrats routinely win by 30 to 35 points. Um, would, would it be a progressive failure if they failed to get uh, a gubernatorial nominee that they liked or if it was, you know, Pringo or Perez? Well, I think it would be hard to call it a failure when it doesn't seem like progressives on the whole have put up a nominee. I mean... John King, sure, but he's only got the endorsements of a few progressive organizations. I mean, if you look at the endorsement list, um, Ed Markey endorsed uh, Peter Franco, which I think is very strange. Um, (laughs) Tom Perez is endorsed by uh, Jimmy Gomez, Ruben Gallego, Alex Padilla, and his former rival, Keith Ellison. So, I mean... Progressives kind of didn't coalesce. They didn't pick somebody. And mm-hmm. Tom Perez, for all of his flaws as DNC leader, he's not like, okay, yes, he is a moderate, but he's not a conservative. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't see this as a failure because we didn't, they didn't try. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing about this too is like, I just think that. Maryland is not a state that's a really hotbed for progressive democratic politics in a lot of ways. I think when you think about, there are a lot of unique factors that make Maryland kind of the perfect state to be heavily democratic and have no progressive base. So when you look at the voter base- I raise you Rhode Island. Yeah, I mean, there's Rhode Island too, but look at the voter base in in Maryland, right? You have wealthy suburbanites in the Washington suburbs in Montgomery County. Um, That's not really a progressive voting base. Then you have uh, democratic trending- upper middle class, kind of suburban, exurban, mid-city suburbanites in Frederick and Columbia. Also not really like a progressive hotbed, maybe a little bit more than than Montgomery County, but still not really. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you have wealthy suburbanites in the diverse suburbs of Baltimore. Uh, Again, not particularly a progressive hotbed. Um, And then you have middle to upper middle class uh, black suburbanites in Prince George's County, which is a huge part of the Democratic base. That's probably the largest. Very wealthy. Very wealthy. Probably the largest wealthy majority African-American county in America. Um, And that's like also not really a hotbed of progressive activism. So you basically are left with 
a couple of areas in Montgomery County where progressives do very well. Um, and some areas of, I guess maybe Baltimore, but like, you know, there just isn't, the base just isn't there for it, right? The demographics mm -hmm. are like the yeah. definition of democratic establishment. <laughs> so it's just- Yeah, I mean, the, state, the state has, it's almost 30% African-American. That's a higher population than Alabama. Yeah. That's yeah. as much as Georgia. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of impressive if you think about it, that Ben Jealous won in 2018. I mean, <laughs> it, in, no one was trying. <laughs> in the primary. No, I mean, it's impressive he won the primary. I mean, again, he, that's because no one was trying. Yes. Yes, nobody was trying. There is another primary, though, that I think is interesting for strange reasons. Um, Maryland's fourth. <laughs> Um, the primary between Glenn Ivey and Donna Edwards. Um, Donna Edwards, formerly in Congress, uh, running uh, not for re-election, but to come back to Congress, um, is being opposed, strangely enough, by um, the uh, Democratic majority for Israel and APAC, uh, which I find odd because she voted with them when she was in the House. Um, Sometimes. She voted present on several specific issues that AIPAC takes a lot of issue with. I think she was voted neutral, voted present on a measure to fund defense systems in Israel. That's probably what they found particularly egregious. Uh, but that's but just going off the But she also didn't really vote against them. Like, she didn't vote no very often. She voted yes, sometimes present a lot. And the attacks on her are, again, much like the Summer Lee primary, which I found odd, uh, that she's not a real Democrat. Again, I ask. <laughs> an uh, I actually think that's a interesting primary. Is a Democrat. That's an interesting primary because I think well, Edwards has tried to rebrand kind of since she um, left Congress. I mean, she ran in the primary in, I want to say, was that the 2016 Senate? That was the 2016 Senate election against Chris Van Hollen. Yep, yep. she's tried to there's, there's a great story about this where uh, I, I think it was going on with, like, the Clinton campaign. Uh, there, there's a story in here about, like, they didn't want people to push for Donna Ed – like, they didn't want Hillary to push for Donna Edwards mm -hmm. because they were worried that Edwards based during that primary – would be more in tune to Sanders and they didn't want uh, Clinton to encourage uh, Edwards at all. Cause they were worried that that would uh, help out Bernie Sanders in the concurrent uh, presidential primary <laughs> that was happening in the state. <laughs> okay. That's a choice. Um, um, but, but yeah, I mean, to Joe's point, like Edwards has tried to rebrand as a progressive. Interestingly, this is not her first comeback bid. She ran little known fact. She ran, in the, uh, she ran for Prince George's County uh, supervisor, or not supervisor, Prince executive. George's County executive, executive in 2018, and she lost like 70-30 to the current executive, Angela Alsabrook. So um, I, I tend to think that without any polling, I'm low on Edwards just because no. she's now had two pretty bad primary losses trying to rebrand yeah. as a progressive so like i don't think she's gonna make the comeback bid, but I, I i will say change has a re cha the most recent poll came from change research right uh which was which was supposed so which is supported by a fund that supports edwards it showed edwards down to glenn ivy by five points she's okay. taking an early she, yeah. so she's not i i mean looking at the spending um donna edwards spent about 
600, uh, has about $600,000 in outside funding and 700000 on her own. Glenn Ivy spent about a million dollars and had outside spending of close to $4 million. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't see it. Um, this is just a really weird one because I, I don't see what's that offensive about Donna Ivy. Or not Donna, Donna Edwards. <laughs> I don't see what's all that offensive. Um, she's certainly not a Bernie Sanders socialist. Um, she may have tried to rebrand as one, but I don't think that's a, I don't think that's an accurate description of her. Also, I didn't know she lost a, uh, a supervisor primary. That's that's not great. If you're a former member of Congress, not great. Maybe don't try to have another bid. Mm. Yeah, but before we get too caught up in Maryland, let's go ahead and move on to a, a, several other topics we have before we go into our new mailbag segment. We've got some questions that Kraus will be reading off of, uh, in a bit here. Uh, let's go into these uh, polls, though. Specifically, want to get talk about New York 10 first, because New York 10 is uh, a disaster, to put it lightly, right now. Uh, there's a lot of Democratic candidates here. There was just a poll put out. Um, which is an interesting result. Obviously, this is the new seat that stretches from, uh, or well, it, it's the redrawn seat that stretches from Lower Manhattan down into Park Slope, uh, Borough Park, uh, par parts of other parts of uh, Southern Brooklyn and Northern uh, Brooklyn. This is an open seat. Uh, it's completely open. It's very democratic. So Republicans have no shot here. Um, but on the Democratic side, there are a lot of people, surprisingly, who want to be a member of Congress, uh, including among them. Uh, you look at Wikipedia, it's kind of absurd. Among them, you have uh, you know Bill De Blasio, you have uh, Dan uh, Elizabeth you know Holtzman, former congresswoman there who's really old. You have Mondier Jones, Julian New, uh, Carlina Rivera, uh, just a bunch of people. But the the only poll we've had out in this race so far, uh, aside from the Joe Emerson poll early on, is some data for progress. They're usually pretty decent in Democratic primaries. They had uh, Carlina Rivera up in first, seventeen percent. Julian New at second, fourteen percent. Uh, then Daniel Goldman, 12%. Elizabeth Holtzman at 9% somehow. Mondaire Jones at 7%. Joanne Simon at 8%. And the worst mayor in the history of New York, Bill de Blasio, running up there at 5%. Um, I, I'm sorry. Can I jump in with how funny I think this whole thing is? It is, <laughs> it is a funny thing. It is undeniably a funny thing. This is a very funny poll. I'm sorry. <laughs> Elizabeth, okay. I don't know what's funnier to me. Bill de Blasio in last place, or Mondaire Jones polling lower than Elizabeth Holtzman, who has literally <laughs> out of politics for what, 30 years? 80 years the old. Only, the only Democrat, 80 years the only old. Democrat, the only Democrat to lose a statewide federal race in New York uh, as an incumbent in like the last 50 years, 60 years. Like, that's impressive. That's really I, impressive. And I, I do want to disappoint Dylan here. Technically, uh, Bill de Blasio was not last place. Uh, oh. Mon Marone only polled 1%, and Brian Robinson uh, did not poll a oh. uh, accurate amount. So, you know what? I'm okay with Mon Marin being last. She's anti-LGBT. I don't know what you're even doing in that primary. Uh, <laughs> rolling. But, of course. Wait, sorry. Oh. Wait, is this is – this, um, Elizabeth Holtzman, I think this is, this is actually funny because we talk a lot about how Democrats are like – a gerontocracy she was like the up-and-coming like young lefty who was gonna like change the game in 1980 like that was her big <laughs> race was 42 years ago i think mean, she's 80 years old now i actually need to check 
Um, yeah, she's she is 80 years old. And by the way, in that poll, she had the highest favorable she had the highest favorability ratings of all of the yeah. candidates that were well, polled in that race. I'm actually, okay. so I'm actually in not. theory, if we go by this poll and we go by the favorables, technically the person who has the most ability to rise would be Elizabeth Holtzman. Well, okay. I'm actually not surprised that Elizabeth Holtzman has the highest favorability. Um, she, she probably has high re name recognition because of her previous failure to run for statewide office. But she's been out of politics long enough that if people didn't like her, they forgot why. I, mean, I will say there is precedent. There is precedent for these sort of – I will say this. Obviously, it's a little bit sooner and it didn't take her as long to do this. Uh, Bella Abzug, when she was the representative from the Upper West Side, uh, ran for Senate and lost. She then proceeded to run several attempts for Congress over the next decade or two, including one in Westchester County. So it's not unprecedented for like progressive, youngish sort of Democrats in that era to run. But they did so like 20 years ago. They didn't do it right now. <laughs> and they made multiple attempts, not Elizabeth Holtzman coming out like 30 years later, like, I remember me. I want to be in Congress again. <laughs> um, I also think... Uh... Um, I'm kind of surprised that Jones is so low. Um, so am I. I was shocked. He's not from the district. He's not. Well, okay, okay. But didn't didn't he make a big deal about running in the seat? Like, wasn't it like? Yes. You know, he yeah. made a huge. He made a huge yeah. thing. He's like, like, yeah, he's like that. It has Stonewall in it, but like that could be important for some voters. But I'm, the, the majority of the district is not gay. That might not be well, a motivating right. factor for the majority of the district. And even if it even if it were majority gay. Like, okay, most, accusa <laughs> most accusations of identity politics are bullshit, but saying, hey, I'm going to run in this district because I'm gay and it's gay might be the definition. <laughs> like, no, I'm sorry. Well, okay, I want to be fair. I was like, you should just run with that message entirely. You should just make that the message if he wants to, like... <laughs> I'll be, I'll be fair to uh, Congressman Jones here. Uh, he wasn't actually running in this district because of the uh, uh, the LGBT uh, population. He was running in this district because he thinks he's going to lose in his new district. He's running here because he's in between Sean Patrick Maloney and Jamal Bowman, who would either trounce him in a primary or hobble him so much that he'd lose his See, I think I think what he needs to do is run with the message. Just be like, I'm a good, fairly progressive uh, congressman, and I'm going to lose if I stay in my old district. So elect me, voters of New York 10. It's okay. all the same anyway. Like, uh, ironically, <laughs> if I were his campaign manager, the message would be, Democratic leadership screwed me out of my seat. Let me run here, and I will be the biggest thorn in their side you've ever seen. Yeah, that or just like I don't know, like just be like I mean, like maybe I'm like cynical, but like it's kind of all the same. Like this whole like, yes. especially like in Manhattan, where it's like, oh, like sorry, dude, like you're from above like 36th Street or something. Like no can do. Like you're a carpet bagger now. Like come on, the guy lives like like two miles from the district. Like just like two hours, <laughs> two hours but okay, well, you know what I mean, right? It's like come on, <laughs> just like. He's from like, Nay in Westchester County. That's not even that far. People from the Rockland, community to the city Rockland, all the time. Rockland, <laughs> well, here's the Rockland, thing. Here's the thing. This is a uniquely bad city to park a bag into, right? Because on, on the one hand, you have people who are genuinely convinced there is a difference between the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side. 
you, you have people that are genuinely convinced, and I believe them, that, that they think there is an absolute actual difference to anyone outside of the city of New York, Adam, outside of Manhattan, period. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And then on top of that, he's not even from the city. He's not even from the Bronx. He's, he's, he's from Westchester County, which is not New York City. Like, this is, a, this is just not the best. If this was like Los Angeles, would anyone care? Probably not. New Yorkers really are very regional in terms of this sort of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. ugh, I, I mean, he's got a base. Sure, he's, he's got a base there. I don't think the Stonewall message is entirely bad. I just don't think it really uh, matters to anyone because the brunt of the seat, I mean, I'm pretty sure the brunt of the vote comes from, from some Brooklyn anyway. Yeah, I well, think so the, other is, close the, to the Stonewall method has very limited appeal, I think. It, well, it the, nets him a very small base if it nets him every voter he thinks it will. It's mm-hmm. still the, a small base. The reason this is also funny to me, the whole regionalism thing, is not that, like, I, I don't understand why people will feel like they have differences. It's that it's New York City, right? Like, it's a predominant. this is not a predominantly white district, right? This is, like, a mixed kind of, it's a pretty diverse district, this one, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's about fifth, I would think it's about, like, at least 50-ish percent white, probably right. more. So like, it's okay. it, it's You're, got about a 25% Asian population, I think. There is nothing, like, New York City representatives are like down almost down the line just like fairly progressive democrats you have exceptions with like aoc being very progressive and like hakeem jeffries being more in the moderate wing but like let's just be clear like it's not like this is a region where it's like they have unique constituent concerns it's not like main second district where like constituent <laughs> services like take priority you need to be like from there to understand the unique problems like it's it's like it's new york city like i like no, you don't understand how offensive you don't understand how offensive it is that Carolyn McCarthy likes pandas. You really don't understand how how just how or, or that Carolyn is. Yeah, I don't. yeah, Carolyn Lowe. Sorry, I, I get the confused. Yeah, no, it's all good. You, you, don't, um, you don't understand how how abhorrent that is to Upper West Side voters. They hate pandas. It's the number one anti-panda constituency in the country. I just think this is part of the uh, the New York hegemony in news media. You know <laughs> that we all, have to be, we all have to be subjected to like ten thousand different stories about like the intricate differences between like one group of rich white Democrats and another group of rich white Democrats. <laughs> so I, I do actually we we talked a lot about Bundar Jones and Bill De Blasio and we should because Bill De Blasio has ninety eight percent name recognition and is sitting at five percent, which is objectively <laughs> funny. Um, <laughs> But I do think we should talk about the top three. Carol, um, I'm forgetting her first name. I'm sorry. Rivera. Uh, Rivera. Yeah, 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 Rivera. Rivera. Carolyn Rivera. Carolyn Rivera. I thought that Carolina. was Car- yeah. Carolina. Thank you. Um, Carolina Rivera, Eulene New, and Daniel Goldman. Um, Goldman. Goldman is a very weird candidate. Uh, Isn't he the guy who was like one of the leads against an impeachment inquiry? Yeah, yeah. he was the lead on the impeachment inquiry the first time around uh, for the Mueller report. Um, and he's translated that into a $1.2 million war chest because, <laughs> because Morning Joe. Um, I think he's going to have a very limited reach. Um, I think he's all, uh, yes, um, Eric and Kraz's points about rich white democrats is well taken there are a lot of them and he will be supported by many of them because he is also a rich white boring democrat um but 
I tend to think he's going to have a more limited reach. The danger, I think, is Yuli Nu and Carlina Rivera kind of take from the same lefty wonk organizer constituency. And I think we're seeing that with them sitting at 17 and 14% respectively. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually surprised Rivera is as high as she is. Um, She's got a lot of endorsement from a lot of Latino, uh, a lot of Latino groups, which is a, is a factor here. Um, yes. you know, Nidia Vasquez or Velasquez represents a portion of this district, a thin line of it currently as it exists right now. So she does have some influence in the area, I would think. Um, yeah. I would think it would be more of a slam dunk, but I, I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I don't want to go too much into it, but she, like, she got into a hot water. She actually lost an endorsement from uh, Brian Cunningham, who's the representative for Crown Heights and some areas around it for supporting BDS. And I'm bringing it. The her comment was not that she actually supports BDS. Her comment was that she basically some, someone supports the right to BDS, but she also said she supported it in those words. But it was very clear she was talking about like, the right to do that, not necessarily in itself. That's hurt her. I don't think it hurts her that much because there's not a whole lot of Crown uh, Borough Park in this district. Uh, it's, it was chopped in uh, multiple pieces in redistricting. It's not a huge chunk of this, but it could matter in terms of those endorsements. Uh, you know, specifically for some on the Brooklyn end of things, where that is an important constituency. De Blasio has been trying to campaign off of this. It's not working. Abuse is still De Blasio. Uh, and he has okay. issues, I don't. I don't think that's a problem of the attack. I think that's a problem of just because he's Bill De Blasio. Yeah, yeah. that's not, that's not the message. That's the messenger. Um, <laughs> somebody asked in the chat who we think is who has the advantage. Um, look, I, I support you, Lee New. I don't think that's a secret. I do think she has the advantage, even if it's narrow. Um, I do think. Goldman is probably undervalued, even though I just spent a lot of time talking about how he has limited reach. <laughs> um, Mondaire Jones seems like he's not going to be a factor. Um, I think that Emerson poll that showed that I think it was 83% of voters in the district would not support somebody who's not from the district. Um, I think that's probably accurate, even though it's from Emerson. Um, so even if it would be even worse, I want to see if the poll, if they're not even from the city, I want to see that poll because I imagine that's even worse. Yeah. And <laughs> he would have to win every single one of those 17% to even be competitive. Um, so I just don't see it. Maybe it could change because he has an obscene amount of money more than Daniel Goldman, but I would still be surprised. Um, so I think this is, I think the top three here is going to be pretty consistent. I don't see Jones making a run at it. I don't see Holtzman making a run at it either. Um, I just, <laughs> it's going to be a great precinct map. Like I, it's going to be like the Oklahoma second uh, primary where it was like, it was like 17, 15, 14, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10. It's going to be like seven candidates getting, getting, but well, look, it, uh, here's the good thing. At least unlike that, unlike that Bronx primary last year, there's a zero percent chance that an actual conservative slips through this one. So there is yes. at least that. And as much as I do support Eileen New, I think it would be objectively funny if Elizabeth Holtzman won. <laughs> yeah, objectively, that would be funny. Absolutely. Yeah, New York, New York, for the first time in a generation, it's a chance to elect a bold new progressive leader and goes for Elizabeth Holtzman. Yeah, that, that would be. <laughs> that you have a bunch of. You have a bunch of women of color from with lots of great progressive backing. You have a one once in a lifetime chance 
you elect the 80 year old white woman who hasn't been in politics in 30 years. Stay there, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> What's the Simpsons? The, the thing is, the, the we can't govern, we hate life and ourselves. That's the like, that's that's this part of the Democratic Party personified as the case. In yeah. fairness, I kind of think I kind of think that New will will just end up winning because I think she I, probably yeah. has the most like. Well, she has the Working Families Party, which is a very big endorsement in that area. Right. She actually has like institutional support, and she's not Bill De Blasio, so like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, helps. Carlina Rivera is also an elected member of the state house. But right, she's right. come under some fire from progressive activists for voting for a budget they didn't support. Um, she doesn't have working families party. So I tend to think Yuli is going to win this. <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised if Carlina Rivera or Daniel Goldman won. And I would be endlessly amused if it was Holtzman. And furious. <laughs> I would also be furious. But mostly amused. 64. <laughs> <laughs> it would certainly be an entertaining night. That's uh, that's definitely you, without question. You you would get to see me do what Joe did when Doug Mastriano won. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bad night. Yeah. So, uh, do we want to go on to another topic, or do we want to go to that mailbag? Because we got let's we go got to the mailbag. Yeah, mailbag, mailbag. Mail All right, let's go. Yeah. All him out of the crash. This is a new segment right. we're doing each week. We're going to bring, we're going to be asking you some questions before the show, and we'll be answering some of those questions. Um, right. Pretty simple. Okay, so we have seven responses. So I'll try to get through all of them. So the format of this is I'm going to break open the mailbag. I'm going to be like the postman, just whipping out mail, and then I'm going to read them, and then I'm going to give my answer, and then we're going to we're going to whip it around to everyone, um, and then we'll just do it until we're all, through all the questions. So okay, um, here's the first question. These are all anonymous, by the way. Uh, there's a lot of talk over the Republican presidential primary in 2024, but what about the Democratic side? Is Biden a lock for re-election, or does another candidate like Newsom have a legitimate shot of taking the nomination? So I tend to think that okay, here's I, I tend to think that while Biden is not super popular right now, I think that a lot of the talk about taking off an incumbent president in a primary is just hot air. Um, it's almost impossible to do unless the president is super unpopular and out of step with the base. I don't think that really describes Biden. I think someone like Newsom, unless he's president or bust, is going to go for it. But I, I don't. So I don't think Newsom's going to go for it. Maybe if he's president or bust. The problem is for Newsom, that kind of run would conflict with his ability to run in the twenty twenty four. Uh, Senate race in California, which presumably Diane Feinstein will not be running in. Um, that is a bad although, assumption. Although you never, you never know. Um, but many people believe she will finally retire, and if that's the case, then that's a a wide open seat where Newsom could clear the field. Um, and I guess if he's president or bust, he could run in 2024, but it's probably career suicide. So I'm going to say that, no, I think Biden is basically a lock for the nomination. Let's throw it first to Dylan, then Joe, then Eric. So I agree with Kreis's conclusion, but I disagree with the reasons. Um, oh, you are I, in law school now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, no, I think Biden will be the nominee, almost certainly, if he runs, which I think he will. Um, 
the reason is not because I think he's impossible to beat. I just don't think anybody serious is going to challenge him if he runs. Um, I do think he is out of step with the base. I think this has been shown over and over again. But I don't think that is going to translate to a serious challenge by anybody with any institutional support. Newsom serves his career first. Uh, he is a careerist first and foremost. He will not challenge an incumbent president still beloved by the party establishment, uh, even if the base would be with him because what has the base ever gotten him? He, he fails up. This is Gavin Newsom. Um, I don't think Bernie would run. I don't think he would win if he did run, but I don't think he would. He's friends with Joe Biden, so I don't see it. Uh, same with Elizabeth Warren. Same with really everyone serious. He could attract a challenge from, say, Nina Turner, but I don't see that going very well for her. Um, I think this is going to be a Jimmy Carter scenario where he gets a challenger maybe less prominent than uh, Ted Kennedy, but and they get a lot of attention, but they ultimately lose fairly comfortably. Yeah, you know what? I think Gavin Newsom is going to run for president, <laughs> but in 2028. I, yeah. I think Grant is absolutely right. I think Newsom is going to angle pretty heavily for that Senate seat uh, in 2024. I think he very much wants to make Ilingi Kunakalis uh, governor at some point early. Because uh, I think he wants her to replace him. Uh, if their relationship is any uh, connection to that, there they have a very good working relationship, and I think uh, he definitely wants her to replace him uh, in terms of uh, that gubernatorial seat. I think Newsom is going to run for the Senate in 2024. I do think he will be then. I think become president or bust basically in 2028. Uh, but he will run for president, just not in 2024. And I think Joe Biden's going to be okay. Can, can I just say before we go to Eric that I look forward to the Gavin Newsom Katie Porter primary? Yes, <laughs> yes, you're you, you're getting it, Dylan. You're getting the chaos now. Go. <laughs> so I think people underestimate just how difficult it is to challenge an incumbent president in a primary. We've had exactly two examples of this happening, and both of them lost, and both of them were in like white, just white whale scenarios, right? So in 76, you have Gerald Ford, who was not elected vice president, was appointed by Richard Nixon, uh, immediately pardoned Richard Nixon after he became president, appointed Nelson Rockefeller as vice president. He basically did everything possible to just irritate everyone in the Republican Party, and he still won. He, he beat Ronald Reagan 53 to 46, probably a good thing for Reagan in the long run that he did not run in 76 instead of 80. But like He did basically everything possible to irritate Republicans and specifically conservatives, and he still won. 1980, Jimmy Carter is beyond unpopular, just complete disaster of a president. I think most people would, would, would agree by this point that he was not a good president at minimum. And he goes up against Ted Kennedy, who has damaged goods at this point, but is still generally seen by a lot of people as like a future of the Democratic Party. It's liberal, uh, per, liberal line. I think he could have actually made a serious shot at that if he hadn't had a, essentially committed manslaughter. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that he was very he, – he didn't really have a message. He didn't really – and he had you know, the, the whole manslaughter thing uh, running over him, and he still had 37% of the vote. It is very, very, very hard. Like The, the example of a scenario where Biden would, would lose a primary would probably be something like he's at 15% approval rating. Um, he lost five or six Senate seats instead of four. Uh, he lost you know, super majority in the House. 
uh, is clearly showing signs of mental decline and is generally just behaving like a lunatic. That's probably what it would take for a primary challenge to be considered even serious if he's running. It is impossibly hard to go up against a political party at, at this level. And to be clear, when the incumbent president is in charge, they're, they're the political party. They, they are in charge of the levers of power in that party. Uh, even if Biden is on the on the cusp of senility for whatever reason, like it'd be really, really hard to go after someone, to just go after an incumbent president. I just don't think it's viable at all for someone to challenge him in 2024. I think whoever does that would be on a suicide run. Uh, yeah, so we're, uh, we're in agreement here. Does not look like Biden's going to get a serious uh, challenge. Uh, can, can I ask a bonus question? Yeah, what? Do we think he's going to run? He says I, he's going. Yes, because I'll just get my quick answer on this and we can quickly do this. Like the guy's wanted the presidency his entire adult life pretty much. He finally mm -hmm. got it. I think he really believes that like he is like the vanguard of like the traditional liberal movement. movement. And so I just think like, yeah, he's not going to give it up voluntarily. Yes, agreed. Um, okay, so now second question, which is, are the GOP choking away the Senate? Um, so there's been a lot made about the perceived quality of some of the GOP's Senate nominees this cycle. And they might also nominate Blake Masters in Arizona. Um, here's what I will say. So I think that to lose the Senate in what is going to appear to be a red year when it's already 50-50 would be one of the most historic choke jobs in recent memory from a political party. Um, it would be, I, I think that when people talk about oh, they're choking it away, you have to realize just how incredibly difficult it would actually be to choke it away in a year like this. I, like, mm -hmm. very, very difficult. It would um, be like if you're in the third quarter of the Super Bowl and you're up 28 to three. That's yes, probably it would the rough be, equivalent. Yeah, that, would, that is the rough equivalent. It would be histor <laughs> a historic choke job. So just at that level, I think it's almost impossible for them to choke it away. The other thing is like, Sean Trendy had a really good article on this, actually, I think like yesterday, where he made the point like, or maybe it was this morning. He, he said, look, like every year we do this where the challenger's flaws get hyped up and everyone says like, oh, this party's choking it away and like they don't have good candidates and whatever. And then they always end up winning because at the end of the day, the environment is just too much to overcome. And so, yes, a lot of the GOP's Senate candidates are not very good. But at the same time, like I just don't think they're bad enough to to be like double digits below replacement level candidates at this point. I just don't think that's <laughs> plausible. And so I, I, they're not doing well, but I think that unless multiple of their candidates say really terrible things in September, they're still on track to win the Senate. Um, once again, basically agree. Um, I do think that they are in danger of choking it in a couple of key races, Arizona and Pennsylvania in particular. Um, Pennsylvania, I'm less convinced on because I think a lot of it's noise, but Dr. Oz has very, very low approval rating. A lot of like, it is Republicans, a lot of it is Republicans not liking Dr. Oz, which is an entirely correctable issue by November. That, that is fair, but right. I, I will and, say to kind of counter that a little bit, like the bet primary was over two months ago now. Like you would mm -hmm. think that if he was running a decent a half decent campaign, he would have almost entirely recovered that co-partisan share by now, but he hasn't. So like that is he is, does it still look weak. I think. Yeah, and uh, I I agree mm -hmm. it's a correctable problem, but it's still a problem, and it doesn't seem to be showing signs of getting better. Um, and as far as the vibes prime, uh, as far as the vibes election is going, um, he's not doing so hot. 
Um, he's not really running any ads, uh, from what I can see. Um, he, it, Fetterman spent a whole bunch of time away from the campaign trail, and Dr. Oz didn't use that time to define the race like we all thought he would. Um, I don't think they're choking it largely, but I think they're doing everything they can to. Uh, Blake Masters as well, because Blake Masters keeps saying dumb things repeatedly. Yeah, and will say uh, you know, possibly as think, he will every day beforehand. I, I think possibly is the right answer here. Uh, I uh, Speaking as a Republican, I'm always the hardest, uh, as I think Kraz and Eric have seen before. I've always been the mm-hmm. hardest on my party uh, in these races. You correctly pushed us behind the scenes to rank those two Georgia Senate races as Democratic. Kraz and I were the ones that were like the Republicans are probably more favored in those. Well, Joe, to be fair, Kraz and I are also incredibly hard on Democrats. No, no, I'm, I was not disagreeing with that. I'm just putting that out there as a prerogative because people know who I am in that in, in that regard statements to my party. But uh, you, I, I've become more confident in Nevada uh, increasingly over the last couple mm-hmm. of months. Uh, I've become pretty relatively confident in Wisconsin uh, over the last couple of months, even though I think Ron John's kind of a, you know, a moron. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to have issues there uh, in the end. Really, I think this what this what this is going to come down to is Pennsylvania and Arizona, I, as long as Republicans can win one of those two seats, uh, I, I think they've won the Senate then almost surely, especially if they've won Arizona. Uh, that I think if you're winning Arizona, especially if Blake Masters is the candidate, I think at that point you've almost certainly won Nevada. And I think probably potentially counteracted any uh, screw up in Pennsylvania. So that yeah. that's my take on it. Yeah, what I would say is uh, it would be a challenge again. You know, when people talk about screw ups, they're talking about like 2010 where Republicans didn't control the Senate, even though they picked up like six or seven seats because they nominated dumb candidates in a few states. 2012, they could have, but like there's only only one or two really bad candidates, Aiken and Murdoch. Um, I mean, George is not looking bad at the moment. Warnock has not been leading in most of the polls. Uh, you know, it's been pretty even, even set between Warnock and uh, and Walker. Kempis seems to be just completely dominating the field at this point. Arizona is bad, um, but also Arizona is Arizona. It's really... Uh, Ohio does not matter. I've seen people trying to say like Ohio. I don't like JD Vance either. He's going to win. It doesn't matter. Like in that state, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, it's Pennsylvania. It's really what it boils down to Pennsylvania and Arizona. But even if with even without those, Pennsylvania will be a flip. Arizona will be a hold. Republicans could still take the Senate even if they lose Pennsylvania. Uh, if they mm-hmm. win, you know, Georgia and they win Nevada, they would still flip the Senate in that case because that's two seats gained compared to one seat needed. Like. It's really difficult to, for Republicans to screw this up. They have to lose a couple of their own states and not gain any of the swing states in order to do that. Because we know North Carolina, you know, North Carolina's not flipping. Wisconsin's probably not flipping. It, it, I mean, it seems just like a it, it, 50-50 would be like the the absolute worst case scenario for Republicans at this point, in my opinion. And then the closer one is closer to 51 or 52. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we're going to run through these uh, last ones kind of quick. Um, so first one for the house races, are there any seats you think that are in real danger of flipping, but are flying under the radar? So for example, like Oklahoma five or SC one, um, like, uh, like in 2018 for Democrats. So is there any sleeper races? Um, I think, you know, we, we've tracked most of them. I think the only one I see as a, a true, um, sleeper, sleeper race, uh, Mike, Mike Levin's seat in California, um, was only mm-hmm. 51 49 Democratic in the primary, so maybe his seat. Um, I think 
Potentially, Michigan 5 has also flown under the radar because the Republican candidate hasn't made a lot of headlines there. But I think that just given the lean of that seat, that has to be a candidate for a potential wave baby if, like, you know, rising tide lifts all ships and all that. Um, so, yeah, maybe those two. Just quickly, let's just go around quick. Um, let's go, let's go Eric first, then Joe, then Dylan. So we'll go in reverse order. Uh, yeah, I think probably the big one that I'm really interested in right now, I know we just moved this to Lean Democratic, it's got some attention, is Rhode Island, too. Mm-hmm. Um, Democrats made a big mistake in not gerrymandering this district. I don't know why they didn't do this. Uh, Alan Fung is, a, is an extremely credible uh, candidate. Rhode Island, rural Rhode Island and rural New England, some of these areas of Connecticut are really interesting ones that are kind of shifting. The other, actually, I'd put another one be Connecticut one and Connecticut, not Connecticut, Connecticut five and Connecticut three. Those two are also very interesting because they follow the same two, profile. Connecticut two, Eric. Connecticut two, sorry, uh, the Courtney and uh, uh, in the Connecticut five. Those two are really interesting as well. They fall into the similar demographic profile here, which is very white, rural-ish, Republican or Republican trending white working class districts. Rhode Island in particular exemplifies that. That's the one I'm really interested in watching. So those three. You know, like I think Eric said, I think we've done a pretty and Kras said, I think we've done a pretty good job job of trying to track like the idyllic surprise. Uh, you know, I think if there would be one like legitimate surprise, like maybe like a suburban seat that's like stunningly flips back to Republicans. Uh, you know, you kind of go look around the you know the country. There's not a whole whole lot there. Colorado seven probably would be in that. Yeah, area. but I would say Colorado seven might be the one to kind of keep an eye on there. I'm almost gonna go a bit off the board. I'm gonna go with Pennsylvania, like a le- truly legitimate surprise. Uh Pennsylvania's sixth congressional district. Uh depending we'll we'll see how Chester County goes. It takes in a little bit more of Berks County now along that eastern side. Uh those more kind of purplish, reddish areas. Uh, Republicans don't have a bad candidate there in Guy Ciaraki. Uh, he's not a bad candidate for the area. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's going to flip. But if we want to talk about a legitimate surprise, uh, Pennsylvania 6th District or uh, Colorado 7th District, I think, are two. Um, I haven't been following the House super closely because it's going to flip. But my heart wants it to be New Jersey 5 uh, because we can get an actual Democrat in there in 24 if Republicans take it instead of Gottheimer, but oh well. Um, No, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, those are all pretty good. I I will just say that I think I I would have had Georgia 2 on the board um, before uh, uh, the GOP nominated the, uh, not Hunt, the other guy. West, West, Chris West, West. yeah. Anyway, um, okay. Next one. Who's more likely to run a 2024 general election, Trump or DeSantis? Um, I'll just say quickly, I've never been totally sold on DeSantis's general election appeal. I think he, he performed really well in 2018, but it was less impressive than what we know about how the state shifted in 2020. Um, I can't seem to find anything from polling that indicates that he would be like that much more popular with swing voters and nothing from his performance in 2018 seems to indicate that to me. So I'm actually a little bit more bearish on him just as like, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for it. I think there's a lot, large contingent of largely conservative people on Twitter who like mm-hmm. really hate Trump or think he's distasteful. I really like DeSantis, but I don't think that's like a, a big population in the electorate. So I'm bearish. Although I lean towards maybe DeSantis just because Trump, I think is personally fairly toxic. Um, and let's go to Dylan. Uh, Trump, DeSantis is Scott Walker 2.0. He's Ooh. very overhyped, I think. Um, I'm with Krebs. No, I think uh, Trump, 
almost won a general election as an incumbent with a downturning economy, record low approval ratings, and a pandemic raging on. I think people vastly underestimate his ability to win as a challenger in 24. Uh, yeah. Uh, Santos, I think, does it because I think I, 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 I'm not going to totally, I'm not going to definitely not going to go as far as to call him Scott Walker 2.0. And I'm not, I'm not going to say that I think he, he's like not going to do potentially well. I think he has great potential nationwide. But I think, I think the personal brand that is Trump is just has broken past like the media, the social media side and it just kind of etched its way into certain voters' minds that, that, that Trump is just incredibly toxic to too many groups of people. Uh, I think DeSantis, even if both were to somehow lose, I think DeSantis is just, I think would just do better based on, I just don't think the, the brand around him is just not as toxic. As mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with, with the branding thing. I think people have pretty much dead set what their opinions on Donald Trump are. Um, I think a lot of this depends on what Ron DeSantis does in twenty, uh, how he does in twenty twenty two, how big his win is, because we do believe he's going to win and win by a fairly large margin. Um, so what I would say is watch his margin of victory, um, watch that, and then I think he falls into this thing as Chris Christie, where there is a very clear window for him to run. In Chris Christie, that was twenty twelve. He chose not to run. If no, he had I, run in twenty twelve, yeah, he Ron DeSantis has a window. That window is twenty twenty four. And uh, I think he's going to run. I think he's going to run whether or not Donald Trump does or not, because his window is 2024. That is the yep. you can't wait. You you can if you're on the, the, the man also has currently 134 million dollars. <laughs> that is true. He's preparing for a nationwide run. When you have 134 mil in the bank, you're not yeah. doing it for this for re-election. No, It will be the Charlie Chris level issue. Like you cannot wait seven years to do this. You really can't. No. No, but I think DeSantis vastly overestimates his ability to beat the Trump brand amongst Republicans. Well, I mean, I also think, though, I mean, just to Dylan's point, I, mean, I do think that Trump's coalition is uniquely strong among Republicans, but I don't think DeSantis changes the coalition that much. Um, so I think he, he has some strengths. Okay, uh, next one. Uh, this will be our last one, um, kind of related, which is why are people so much more bullish, whether or not we believe it or not, why are people so much more bullish on DeSantis's chances to beat Trump versus Newsom's chances to beat Biden? Um, I think Eric outlined this. So I'll just be yeah. quick here. Like, it's really just the incumbent president factor. Like, when you are the president, like you are the party, and just like it's just so inherently destabilizing for a party to knock off an incumbent president. It just doesn't happen. And so, Trump, I think, has had a real erosion with Republicans. You know, they had him for eight years, or not eight years. They had him for six years now. Um, you know, after six years, eight years starts to get a little, you know, hey, let's move on. Let's look at something new, right? People get tired. He's not on Twitter anymore. Um, he lost. That, that tends to put kind of a stench on, on politicians, even politicians like Trump. Um, and so I tend to think that, like, you know, I just tend to think that Trump's had real erosion and DeSantis has an opening with all his money and all his, his publicity and, and Newsom does not. I'll kick it to Eric for this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really it's really the timing. Also, like, you know, people kind of uh, like the idea with the Democrats is that in order to win against Biden, you would need someone who is basically like moderate-ish, who falls in the same lane as Biden, but is just not like old. Like that's one thing. The Republicans, I think that there's a theory among Republicans, and I think it's credible. The reason Trump did so well is that he bucked 
is that not because he any it was because he bucked the establishment trends in a lot of areas presented a very muscular vision um, that really appealed to a lot of people who were sick of losing presidential elections because he nominated moderates. That was the theory, at least. Ron DeSantis, you can say anything about him. He is not a moderate. He is someone who basically energizes base conservative voters, and he does so on salient issues that they care about at the time. You know, vaccine mandates is one of them. Uh, school choice is another one. Like, a lot of areas where he's taking on Democrats and key things Republicans care about that he's doing better than Trump did in those areas. He can basically make the vision that, yeah, Trump was good. He, he's, a, you know, he's a good president. He did his thing, but we need someone who's younger. We need someone who has experience in these areas and that can really bring this vision forward into the next eight years of a presidency and really reshape the country as opposed to kind of a return to something that ultimately didn't win. That's the theory, at least. And I think that's a far more credible theory than, well, J.D. Pritzker is, is progressive and he's also not a lunatic, so we should nominate him. I think it's a far more credible theory for DeSantis than the J.D. Pritzker or Gavin Newsom people. Yeah, um, as bearish as I am on uh, on Ron DeSantis, he obviously has a better chance than Gavin Newsom. Uh, yeah, I, I, Joe Biden's the incumbent president. That's why people are more bullish. Um, as we just went over, yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, you know, Joe Biden is the incumbent. Donald Trump is not. Donald Trump has also made endorsements that have pissed off sex of people. This is the problem when you make controversial endorsements like Trump has in certain key races is that when doing so, you piss off other people who supported other candidates. Uh, and that will, in in due time, uh, significantly cut into your primary base of support when you are not the incumbent candidate. Like that, That is just the facts of how it goes. So yeah, DeSantis clearly would have a much better chance against Trump. Than- Them's the brakes, as they say in the UK. <laughs> yep. I think that wraps it up for us, so uh, I'll kick it to Eric to sign it off, and yeah. Uh, yeah, good, good talk. Yeah, again, thank you guys for watching. Thanks for submitting submitting your questions. Really appreciate all your support and engagement. If you like what we're doing, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. I know you've heard everyone say that. It actually does matter. It does really help out. We like doing this stuff. We're going to be promoting it more often. Uh, we got some additional podcasts that we're coming up. We're really excited to present. Uh, coming up soon uh, that will involve some of the members of this uh, of this uh, show here, but we're really excited to show you that. Uh, be sure to tune in Tuesday. We're going to be covering the Maryland gubernatorial. Uh, we're going to be covering the Maryland primaries. We'll have elections weekly, of course. But yeah, you can follow all of us on Twitter. You can find us all here. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for watching. We really appreciate your support. Be sure to tune in next week at the same time, same place for elections weekly.